0: Welcome to Sprouting in STEM, a podcast about young people in science. I'm Audrey Farrell.
1: I'm Matthew Murphy. And each week on this podcast, we bring in a budding researcher to talk about their experiences in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics.
0: down with allison hall a soon-to-be graduate student in marine plant ecology
1: stay tuned for her insights on public outreach citizen science and policy making two goldfish are in a tank one says to the other do you know how to drive this thing
2: (laughs) oh is that the end
1: (laughs) yeah that's the joke
2: oh it started like a gre question Oh, so my, I panicked for a second.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Matt, God.
2: I have a, a very
0: important question about your joke. Okay. Uh, did you Google marine science jokes to get that I, joke?
1: You're very close. I Googled marine animal jokes.
0: Oh, man, that's pretty close. And goldfish are the first that came up?
1: Well, it was the first one I chose.
0: Ellie, I have a question for you that I feel like I should know the answer to. Yes.
2: Is, if
0: something's marine,
2: mm. does it have to be saltwater? So marine uh alludes to saltwater, yeah. If it was freshwater it would merely be aquatic. Therefore goldfish is not a marine animal joke.
0: And I disband Matt's joke from existence.
1: Just because I Googled marine animal jokes doesn't mean I didn't click on the page that says fish and other ocean creature jokes and riddles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so your point is mute, thank you very much.
0: Is it mute? Or is it moot? <laughs>
1: perhaps perhaps we should start over.
2: Also, I study plants primarily. That would please 7th grade, or 7th, 7-year-old uh, me more than it would.
1: But isn't 7-year-old you, like, part of the journey that got you to the present you and therefore <laughs> still very much part of you in some way?
2: That's true. I mean, I when I knew I wanted to be a marine scientist, I went through many different ideas of what I thought a marine scientist was and many different interests, but I don't know if that's unique to the biological studies or if that happens in physics.
1: As yeah, long as it's, it does. As long as it's you, that's what we're here for.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I met you, mm.
0: way back when in freshman year, I mean, I thought you were majoring in marching band, but mostly I thought you were going to study marine animals?
2: Because you are a fish person. Well, so did I. Okay. When did you switch? Um, I think I switched by circumstance. So much of what I picture my future career entailing now is based off what research experiences I got while in college. Hmm. And even though I started working on uh, a marine crustacean hermit crabs, my Very next one was terrestrial plants, and then I continued on to marine plants. And so I think I've fully switched to this point into a hopefully being a marine plant ecologist. Now you're big seagrass. Yeah, yeah.
1: When should you be afraid of an underwater plant?
2: (laughs) (laughs) When? I think when they start becoming sentient. If they start being able to withhold oxygen... (laughs) Consciously, that's when you should be afraid. No. No.
1: When it's an enemy.
2: Oh no! <laughs> but sea enemies are animals, I think.
0: Yeah, actually, Matt. In your quest for marine plant jokes, you have failed
2: twice.
1: Well, the sea plant that's actually a plant joke market is very lacking.
2: Include as a chapter. And my thesis or dissertation, whichever one bulk up that industry a bit.
1: Do you have any jokes?
2: No, and I wish you hadn't asked me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do. I have a really bad one though, actually. please. So back when I was taking um, oceanography, uh, you could get a bonus question on all the exams if you explained a concept and I' tried to end mine with jokes. And so, in the section in which we were learning about uh, kelps, I ended. I have to explain this joke fully. So, the anatomy of a kelp, <laughs> instead of roots, they have something called um, hold fast, which are like little strands that hold them to rocks and such. Hmm. And my joke was something like, What does the kelp yell when a tidal surge comes in? And I said, Hold fast that's my plant joke one of my favorite things
0: about being your friend Mm. is that when I go to classes I learn boring shit like that's cool to me but like universally boring right Mm. and then you go to class and you come back telling me about kelp roots and I just think it's the most amazing thing on the planet (laughs) like that is not universally boring I feel like everyone wants to know ocean facts and you you learn them for, like, a living.
1: Want to hear a cool ocean fact? I do. What do clams say when they get attacked by a crab? I don't know. Kelp.
2: I should have guessed it. I you, you introduced that as a fact, so the fact that it was the joke confused <laughs> me at the end.
0: <laughs> Matt, every single joke so far has had something, like, one fatal flaw.
1: I think I need to... Seek help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Allie, have you have you, uh, have you always been into marine science?
2: I have, yeah. Uh, as long as I can remember, marine science is my career choice. But as I was talking about earlier, what my idea of what marine science was, obviously from a child to now post-grad, oh. um, has changed a lot. Hmm but then also what I wanted to do within marine science has, has spanned almost all parts of it besides the chemical oceanography portion. <laughs> because I'll never want to do that.
1: Is there any particular thing that like, first sparked your interest?
2: I have been asking myself that same question for a while, and then it especially resurfaced when Andre asked me to be here. <laughs> um, but I don't have any definitive memory. I always try and start my applications or my essay with something that made me realize I want to become a marine scientist, but I have i don't even remember making the choice. I've just always told people I wanted to be a marine scientist since a very, very young age hmm. and it's never changed. So I think it's probably because I grew up in Florida. I went to the beach a lot, it was always around water. And then when I moved to Maryland and was really close to the Chesapeake Bay, It was still being around water and being uh, confronted with a lot of environmental issues that focus on marine life Mm. and marine systems. So it's probably circumstance to some extent.
1: (laughs) So is it always just something you've lived with?
2: Yeah, I've definitely was one of the water babies, I think, (laughs) as a child. I always wanted to be in the water or near the water or on the water. Um,
1: But are you a water sign?
2: i'm an aquarius so i'm the water bearer but i'm not actually a water sign which has gotten me upset over the years i really wanted to be one always i felt as if i was like fake because i wasn't an actual water sign but i can be the water bearer i think i'll live with that
1: it's like a fake water sign but that's what i was saying yeah it's close enough
0: i've also tried for the sake of writing like admissions and application essays to think of like the moment i realized i wanted to be a physicist.
1: Yeah, that's like an especially topical question.
0: Yeah, and I literally can't, I, I, there's nothing. I don't know. And it's weird because for me, it wasn't when I was a kid. Like, I haven't wanted to be a physicist forever. It was like high school. And I still don't know. I, I don't know what changed. I hadn't taken physics yet. I don't know. Hmm. What about you, Matt?
1: I'm in the same boat. And even Audrey now is like, I've kind of made up stories.
0: Everyone has their kind of fake introduction yeah. to science.
1: Like, oh, this is that exact moment where everything happened, but it's a yeah. solid It's Who easy knows? with astronomy,
0: Matt. You just have to say, Oh, I looked into a telescope and then I was like, damn, that
2: sure That's is it. space. Yeah.
1: There's my never reviewed GRFP essay. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my go to, um, the few times I've had to I really feel like I need to start an essay or an application with it was me walking along the beach with my mom and finding kelp of different colors and being really interested about why there were different colors of kelp but i'm pretty sure that's entirely fabricated from a story my mom told me about finding something completely different on the beach and i just have taken that idea
0: (laughs) yeah as someone who who was raised mostly inland i i really never spent much time on the beach at all until moving to Long Island and then the only times I was ever at the beach was with you or with our other like ecology and biology focused friends so I feel like I've had a very interesting like shift in relationship with like marine science and marine life in the past four years or so mostly because of you
2: well thank you look at
1: that you're impacting others already
2: well you mentioned that that You the, My classes seemed like universally appeal, appealing to people that everyone wanted to learn about marine life. So imagine me in studying marine life, how it feels <laughs> that not everyone chooses to study this. I just <laughs> don't really understand it. I've always been, I mean, I've been interested in physics and math and other subjects before. But marine science has always been so strong that I knew I wanted to pursue it. That when other people, like, how can you be near the water and not want to make a career out of studying it?
0: Yeah, physics isn't like that. I get it. You hate physics? I get it. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I hate physics half the time, but it's like a it's like a good hate.
1: Is there any times you ever hate marine science?
2: Hate marine science? I don't think so. There's classes I've found more difficult than the others, and I didn't even major in marine science technically, so maybe if I did, um, if the marine science classes weren't always the escape from my general biology courses, <laughs> maybe I'd have moments like that, but I, I haven't. I haven't yet. I feel like marine science sometimes, like maybe many more um, ecology-based jobs, get a little bit of a bad rap. I have a really visceral memory from high school. Mm-hmm. Of we were put in a room for like this seminar. We were all graduating seniors, and they were, of course, pushing college uh, for us to like, go to college and go to a secondary education place. Mm-hmm. And the example they used of what not to major in was marine science. They said, pick a career in which you can find money, like financing or computer science or math. Don't choose one that's super oversaturated. You'll never find a job like a marine biologist.
1: That's (laughs) such a terrible thing to say.
2: Yeah, and I remember getting really angry and then feeling really self-conscious and thinking, should I actually not pursue this? And then just got bitter and more determined. (laughs) Spite! But I've never heard... um, I mean I've heard the jokes about history majors and and like art majors, majors like women's studies and stuff like that like they're more usually humanities majors that are treated as the ones that you shouldn't go after which is completely wrong mm-hmm. but marine science I've no- I've had multiple occurrences where that's also that's a stem major that's mm-hmm. treated as one that has no real career value or career goals or um like feasible jobs that you can get which is just absolutely untrue and also not great.
0: Would you say though, because I know we've had discussions before, because physics is a very wealthy field in, within the sciences, <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> I know we've, we've talked before about marine science not really being the, uh, the focus of a lot of government funding in general. Do you think that's like one of the primary hurdles that your field faces, is a kind of perception that it's not worth the money?
2: Oh, definitely. I think, well, I think not to put any field in, I think any field could have almost as many jobs as any other field if the weight of our society was put on that field. Mm. And I think environmental studies as a whole have just never been a priority for Mm. at least the United States of America. I'm not as invested in other countries, but, and then a facet of that is marine science within environmental studies. So of course it's not going to be well-funded, The people who can distribute mass funding that aren't just private institutions or private donors Mm. aren't putting environmental studies and marine science as an important goal we need to work towards or an important field we need to actually study. So there's going to be a lack of funding and a lack of jobs just in general that come from that, Mm. which is especially sad considering, I think, that issues like climate change and global issues in general are one of the things we should be focusing on the most. Yeah. (laughs) But... clearly not always seen that way on the policy level and on the politics and financial level. Oh, I
0: did want to talk to you about policy because you're one of the the few people I know that's thought about your field's interaction directly with policy makers. You went to a whole conference for
2: that. I did. I went with our good friend and we were the only two scientists or STEM majors there, which was really interesting. Uh, We both thought it was going to be a conference that was Specifically about the interplay between um, more like science and policymakers, and how there's communication and the give and take, and like how scientists can better serve policymakers. Mm. And it ended up being mostly uh, social science and policymakers, which is super important and was very cool to learn about. And in the few talks that our friend and I were able to carve out with uh, some of the professionals, we were able to directly ask, like, how as scientists could we greater serve policymakers and make sure that our data is being used. It's not just going to be lost Mm. in an academic journal, which publications are extremely important, but that's one of my goals for my career is for everything, to use the NSF words uh, to have a broader (laughs) impact (laughs) of my research. Yeah. And I think how policymakers interact with scientists is like really interesting Mm. and I still don't know enough about it. And I'm hoping it's something I can explore. More in grad school, especially since I'm—I'll be going to one that um, has its history made in directly communicating with state officials, hmm. which is one of the reasons I'm very excited to go there.
0: Yeah, I feel like physics is extremely disconnected with policy as they go, like within within
2: STEM. Doesn't. It- but how? Because we've talked about how your field can especially be like weaponized in some ways and is heavily funded by government agencies, so. Do you think yeah. it's just the person to person contact?
0: Yeah, I think like obviously I I have benefited personally very much from the NSF and from like the Department of Energy because a lot of the physics like even specifically within my subfield like plasma physics and laser plasma interactions are ridiculously weaponizable. So I guess in in that regard there is a lot of interaction between <laughs> physics and policy because it's related in a lot of ways to like military research and stuff like that but I think like as as a population of scientists like the individual physicists are less in touch with with policymakers and and with policy in general like it's just not something that comes up it's not something we think about that much
1: I wonder if it's also a result of like the physicists don't directly want to You know, like, they're not directly motivated by, like, getting into weapons and stuff. Whereas, like, someone in the environment would be motivated to be reaching out to policymakers.
0: I feel like it also has a lot to do with how much your work more directly affects, like, society. Because your work, in terms of, like, like marine ecology and such things, words that I know about... Has a lot to do with like with like fisheries and and resource management and stuff that can be more directly impactful to to communities.
2: Hmm. Well, so that's an interesting part of environmental studies and ecology, especially that I've noticed is that one of the first things you you learn about in any basic ecology course, especially that of marine ecology, is um, this idea of ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. which you may or may not have heard like tossed around just in general, but it's essentially what an ecosystem is. by definition is a service that an ecosystem provides specifically for humans. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't say this is like a very bad example and a very small scale, but an oak tree, right, gives acorns. And mm-hmm. if the fact that, squirrels could eat those acorns it's not an ecosystem service to the squirrel because an ecosystem service at its heart benefits humans okay and the idea of it i think was created to better get funding for our field because <laughs> everything that we do if you want it to go far and if you want it to get funding has to have that human element which i think is really important and why i want to be more of an interdisciplinary scientist mm-hmm. because everything with the earth should be in a context with humans because we're one of the most populated things on the earth and we definitely make the most change to it but the fact that we have even just a word to describe how each different ecosystem can benefit us and Mm -hmm. why we should save it in terms of monetary cost but then also just things like aesthetics or like recreation Mm -hmm. and having fun with it so in seagrasses one of the ecosystem services is that the sediment stabilizer And that um, it can lower wave action if it's along coasts. But we can't just study seagrasses usually for what they're doing for other fishes or other organisms unless we're also then talking about, oh, well, how will those organisms affect our, like, seafood harvesting and stuff like that. Which I think, uh, from what it sounds like from talking to you guys through, you know, college, is that a lot of things in maybe astronomy or physics can be done purely because someone wants to figure out about it and for the novelty of knowing. And in environmental science, from what I've gathered in my experience, is if you want things to be funded, especially if you're just getting your start, it has to have a way that benefits humans, Hmm. which is nice because I like the human aspect, like I said, but it's also kind of sad that you necessarily aren't going to get funding just for figuring out a new cool thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you can't just find ocean facts for a living yeah yeah i i was gonna that you you brought yourself to my next question because i feel like there is a big shift in mindset from something more what's that word like like human interacting Mm -hmm. when you take like the step backwards into like chemistry and physics and math it becomes so much more about just like oh we just want to know and a lot of it's justified by the fact that you can't foresee the impact that something will have. Mm. And I feel like oh, that same thing is true no matter what field you're in. You like discovering new information, and you don't always know how it will be useful or how it will be important until you know it. And you can often not see how something's important until you've taken that effort to go learn about it. You know and research that. So. Physics, I feel like, has a very good balance between, like, direct impact of, like, modern technology and just, like, fundamental information that might not be useful yet, but it could be useful in, like, 50 years when we realize how to use this for, like, a cool new technology or an energy resource or something or other. Or go to another planet or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, like, like it's very much accepted in our field that you might not make a difference now, it, but and your research might seem kind of pedantic and unnecessary now, but, you know, 50, 100, 200 years from now, that could be, like, the foundation of a whole new field, you know? It's that kind of, like, excitement of the unknown is a very strong driver. Whereas, I, and I feel like a lot of that's because we're so well-funded already that we have the space to do mm-hmm. that. And I wonder what a field like like marine science could do if it had that kind of resource.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, in broader, like in ecology in general, there's this idea of basic ecology, Mm -hmm. which at its heart is finding out how things in nature interact and doing it just because you want to find that out, Mm -hmm. which is a very, like, probably not a very good definition of basic ecology, but there's that. And then there's applied ecology, which is... um more interdisciplinary and taking what you learn and putting it in applications of conservation or things mm-hmm. like interdisciplinary with humans or social sciences. And ecology as a field is pretty new. Like we, there's definitely ecologists that go back to the 1800s and the, or 1900s, but the foundations in which ecology is studied now, and the fundamentals of ecology that we believe today and is universally accepted today Uh, are fairly new and while basic ecology definitely had its time when things when studying the world as a whole was really well funded applied ecology i think is definitely the direction in which a lot of fields that are ecology based are going now Mm -hmm. is there any of that in astronomy
1: (laughs) there's a bit of it because it's kind of like reaching or it really has reached that same point where it's like people are asking why it really matters to us and like why we should even worry about it and it's kind of like been on the decline like ever since like the space race happened and like the moon landing that was like really kind of the apex of like funding astronomy and just pumping billions of dollars into exploration and developing technologies for that and so like ever since the 60s like up through really the past few years like it's kind of just been getting worse and worse and worse but um, things are on the rebound i'd say
2: yeah would you say that there might be a future like it's a, half a joke but half serious if there was actually to be something like a space force that america created would you consider that maybe like a research like an applied astronomy that people might end up using facts and information from your field if or even if we had to start seriously looking into another planet because we've ruined this one completely or we have too many people mean to extend. You think that would cause a resurgence?
1: I mean, that's kind of already happening. No, <laughs> because like the field of exoplanets has like really kind of come into the field of play over like the past. I mean, it's like a twenty-year-old field now, but it's really only been on the ground running for like the past five to ten years, and we're like reaching the point where we can like look at these other worlds and plan like which ones might actually support life and which ones might actually be able to support future humans Mm. as well as like future NASA missions, like the one that's being launched to Mars next month ish slash maybe next year, depending (laughs) on COVID (laughs) like a whole bunch of that mission is determining whether or not like humans can actually go there and Mm -hmm. survive. So I feel like there's kind of a public shift going on from like, this is not something that pertains to me to, like, hey, we can actually do cool stuff. And I wonder, because I think your yours and mine fields for this are kind of related in that there's, like, while there is a huge research foundation to it, there's also, like, a huge kind of public outreach foundation to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, the popular astronomy and, like, the whole kind of educational aspect to that. And I feel like the same is true in marine science. I'm curious how you think Hollywood has like impacted your field as a whole.
2: I think that is definitely, it's a great point with marine science and astronomy. There is, as we were talking about earlier, like a universal appeal to it. And they're very romanticized. I think in a lot of ways uh, about like what you might be doing, like you might be like looking at telescopes all day and like, maybe even becoming an astronaut if, like, you don't know a lot about astronomy. And mine would be, I think people assume we scuba dive all day and snorkel.
0: But you do scuba dive some amount. A non-trivial amount. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's an. you'd be surprised by the amount of sites marine scientists have created, specifically marine biologists have created, that if you search, like, oh, so you want to be a marine biologist, and it's, like, 10 things we don't actually do, or, like, it's not all glitz and glamour. Mm. Like, people will try and put that information out. And I think it's because, in a lot of ways, Hollywood has painted this really beautiful photo of, because um, everyone loves the ocean, most people love the ocean of, you know, playing with fish all day and being on coral reefs and seeing these really beautiful sights. But in a lot of ways, I mean, obviously the most obvious would be Jaws. Uh, Hollywood can definitely hurt. Mm especially what we're trying to work towards in marine science. And so I guess it's it's a double-edged sword, but I'd probably say it's more positive. I don't think marine scientists really get much of a bad rap.
0: (laughs) I have a very specific question. Okay. So do you think that SeaWorld has had a significant impact on your field?
2: Wow. When I was a child, I went to SeaWorld a lot. (laughs) Um... Which maybe, since I wasn't a child, it also helped me want to become a marine scientist because one of the first careers I wanted in marine science was to be a dolphin trainer. Who didn't want
0: to be a dolphin trainer?
2: Yeah. And then I realized I didn't like SeaWorld. I didn't really like what they stood for, so I banned my family from going there any further when we lived in (laughs) Florida, and we didn't go anymore. Uh, And then there was all the documentaries like Blackfish and Free Willy Mm. and all that. I I struggle with it a lot. I have the opinion, oh, it's almost the same of zoos. I think the practices for marine mammals especially are not great. Mm. And I think that should end because we know just like many animals that marine mammals, especially whales and dolphins, are way too smart to not be like emotionally harmed by the Mm. fact that they're in these tiny pools and they're doing like these tricks all day and don't have a lot of enrichment or a lot of exercise. But I also don't want to underplay the importance of ambassador animals Mm. and ambassador ecosystems. And I think SeaWorld, especially if you look into it, they're undergoing a lot of rebranding or they're trying to and they're really trying to switch up uh, their business model because they've had such a negative um, feedback, Mm -hmm. rightfully so, for everything that's been happening. So I think they have the potential switching it back around. I think overall, unfortunately, it probably did get a lot more people interested in marine life than there were before. But I don't know if I'd be comfortable saying that, like, their practices were worth it.
0: You know, that's something interesting that, like, my field does not have that you to do is, like, some kind of museum structure in place. Because, like, like, planetariums are a thing and aquariums are a thing. There's not really an eum for me. I think that's it's interesting in the way that like I don't think about public outreach within my field very much at all, like in my in my work. Does the existence of such a direct kind of public outreach mechanism kind of change the way you think about your field and its place among the
2: peoples? I think if there's, an, if there's ever a time when a field is in really close contact with the public and there is that relationship, that's supposed to be there. You have to be even more careful of putting out false information Mm -hmm. or putting out misleading information. But um, you kind of, you have to be careful because especially if you come from someone who is supposed to be a scientist, the public's going to trust you a lot more. I think if you're presented as an authority on a subject, so if you are well-respected and connected, you have to make sure what you're saying is right And more, a lot of times, than just your own personal opinion. But I think in environmental studies, it's really important to have that. Because otherwise, um, a lot of the issues that you need changed are either on a person-to-person basis or even more often a policy basis in which you need to get the people to rally behind you for issues in order for policy to be changed.
0: Yeah, and Matt, we've talked in the past a little bit about That concept of when you're presenting to the public and not other scientists, having to, in a lot of ways, kind of reduce what you're Mm -hmm. actually presenting on, which is, you know, your life's work, your career. and Yeah,
1: you got to find that balance between, like, doing it at the level of your audience, but also at a level that still remains or still keeps, like, the veracity of it. It does justice to what you're trying to talk about.
0: This this is a problem that, that I've had when you know when talking to other people about about physics is like well do i want to you know i i want to engage especially younger people if i want to engage someone in what i do am i going to be am i being dishonest by presenting physics as this like such a you know kind of I don't know, ele- like elevated field. Like, oh, it's so cool. Like, I smash particles together all day and I'm like, that's not actually what I do. I sit on Mathematica and wonder why it's not compiling all day. Like, like, am I being, am I giving a dishonest representation of the science by trying to make it appealing to the public or to, like, someone outside my field?
1: It's like, do you want to be right or do you <laughs> want to be understood? Yeah. Because you really can't ever, oh, at least always, have both.
2: Hmm. Well, I think that's where the importance of science communication comes in because ideally, yeah, why members of the public might not always get every term you're using or every concept. Like I know when I've prefread slides for Audrey's (laughs) lab meetings, almost none of it made sense, but I got a good portion of it because she's a really good science communicator. And that shows through by the fact that I can understand a little bit about a field that I have absolutely no experience in. Um, So ideally, you'd want to get the correct information across in a way that's not only engaging, but also like easily digestible. Mm. And I think that's probably a fine line between professionals contacting the public is if you're going to have your hands in both, you should be able to translate the information flawlessly between the two versus if you're going to be a voice for scientists that are entirely in the public sphere, that's also okay and fine. But you even then have to be more conscious that what you're saying is correct and that you're you're translating properly if you're not the one actually presenting your own science, for instance.
1: Do you think there are any barriers like in your field specifically to being able to do that?
2: Having your hands in both?
1: Being able to like kind of do both at the same time effectively.
2: So as someone who knew I want to have a lot of public outreach and have a lot of contact with the public. While I was applying to graduate schools, I, in my email, would make it extremely clear that I wanted a graduate program that put, obviously not equal, but near equal weight on public outreach and science communication as the actual graduate work. And I was told by multiple of my mentors, not my mentors, but like um, people I respect and people who have already kind of made it in my field, that that wasn't a good idea and that's not what graduate schools want to see. And I've been told by people even in uh, the graduate school world that your research has to come first, like as long as things don't, you know, mm-hmm. conflict with your studies and your research is the primary focus, which is true. But I think amongst the next generation, probably, there's a lot more willingness to put stuff like public outreach as a forefront, something that's really important, while maybe in the past it could be seen as like a distraction,
0: hmm.
2: and well, obviously the research should be the most important.
0: Yeah, I think about this a lot. Like, I feel as if in an ideal world where like the entire public had like an interest in science, and you didn't have to like kind of break through the barriers of like. I mean, I don't want to say capitalism, but like kind of like capitalism. <laughs> Before you reached people, I I feel like there would be less of an issue. Like for for physics in particular, I feel like there was such a lack of any public communication effort for such a long time that now part of why it's hard is cuz there's no precedent for it. Whereas and like the only examples that you get for people communicating physics to the public are like a- astronomers who it's like a kind of separate whole deal, and then uh, like like Bill Nye the Science Guy, which is yeah yeah, which is like for kids, but it's good. I feel like if physics had that kind of that kind kind of groundwork laid down, that like marine science does with with the whole kind of a- aquarium system and and there, I've seen a lot of ecology outreach through like nature preserves and and camps and things. And I think that's something that I really admire about your field. And I wish that mine had. And it's been so long since we've had something solidly in place like that that I don't know what it looks like anymore.
2: I think my job there is definitely a lot easier than your job. Because I, if aquariums didn't exist, which already they're quite expensive because they're expensive to maintain. So for people who don't even go to aquariums, The best advocate for getting people to be inspired by marine life is the actual marine life
1: because (laughs) people
2: can play in it and they can see it. They live near it. It's desirable and you can touch it. And in many ways it's free. You can usually just (laughs) stroll into a marsh or a beach if you wanted to. And so I think nature does a really great job itself. In something like marine life where if as long as you live in a state or in a country that has coasts and you visited a coast or maybe you're more into aquatics you go to lakes and rivers
0: mm-hmm.
2: but unless you're in a place where you've truly never visited the water uh you can kind of get inspired by the water itself you don't need a separate museum well maybe something like a, astronomy if you don't have a telescope. And if there were no TV shows talking about space, you could go into your backyard and look at the stars for sure. And so I think it's also a really nice free way to do it. But, you know, planetariums and things like that probably help a little bit more than.
0: It's like, (laughs) it's moments like these that I wish I could remember why I got into physics. So (laughs) it's (laughs) like, like, how did I find this? I gotta, (laughs) did I just like move and be like, (gasps) that moved because of Newton or something? (laughs) Like, like, no. (laughs)
1: Because like, it's, Physics isn't something that you can go out and like do in a normal day and recognize that it is what it is. Yeah, like you can go to visit the ocean and be like, "Hey, this is marine life," or you can look up at the stars and be like, "Hey, this is astronomy." But like, there's no analog to that in physics, really. Yeah, and math has that, the like, same is issue. Common.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I did um at my summer program last year. I we had like a. There was like a big fair in the adjacent town. And so we set up like a science table to try and get people into physics. And we did all these kinds of demonstrations, but none of them are like cool physics to a physicist. It's it's one of those things where I feel like it's a very large barrier to public outreach that most of the things that physicists do aren't easy to communicate and have no like natural I guess I mean they have a very obvious natural analog because it's a natural phenomenon but like it's not easy to see and perceive as a as a human being but I feel like that has really shaped our connection to policy and to the public in a way that marine science and astronomy has also
2: just in opposite directions <laughs> well that leads me to a question I have for you guys then um, I think besides maybe person-to-person contact and things like tours or demonstrations Mm. and nature preserves uh one of the coolest ways that the public who maybe aren't scientists can become involved in science if they want to is through wow the word actually just left me (laughs) what's it um when you uh citizen science Mm. when People who aren't scientists can become involved in citizen science and citizen science projects. I know I was one, even though I am a scientist, I joined Global FinPrint and I just was of um, sharks and fish and would identify the types of turtles and sharks and like eels and marine mammals I saw. And it was so that we could get global population counts. Uh, scientists would put these cameras down, but then ask anyone who wanted to, to identify the animals by watching the videos. And I mm-hmm. think astronomy has one where you can identify black holes. They'll kind of teach you and you can sign up to just view images and stuff like that. But is there any anything <laughs> like that?
1: Astronomy has a lot of that. Okay, yeah. There's like a huge sector of it devoted kind of to that, I don't know what you call it, like citizen science. Because like the <laughs> observational resources are extremely minuscule compared to the amount of things to look at in the universe so there are many cases where researchers are looking to do large surveys but they just don't have like the time to do it so they'll actually contract out like amateur observers to go and like observe a specific star during a specific amount of time i don't know if there's anything like that in physics
0: <sighs> um yeah no like particle physics we don't get we don't we don't got that
1: you don't trust the public to do your work. <laughs> it's
0: not that we don't trust the public. Is that the way that you probe like fundamental particle physics is with billions of dollars of machines that take a shit ton of energy, a shit ton of money, and a shit ton of people with PhDs to operate. And I like I was a tour guide at Brookhaven National Lab for a summer, and so part of my job was to like take take the public it was that that lab is only open to the public for four days every year it's like four sundays in a row and it's the only time anyone without clearance can go into that lab and so my job was like to take all these people and like kids and stuff on the buses and take them to to the relativistic heavy ion collider which is this giant you know giant collider it's a huge ring it's like several miles across and it's like very cool but I like while I was there I realized if you don't know what it's doing you walk in and it's like wow that's a big pipe it's not that intriguing to look at even when you have the opportunity to show people which you don't that often because security clearance but yeah I think think one of the most interesting things that my field has to offer is not things you can like look at like in a museum it would be software i think a lot of physics software is super cool like simulations but maybe that's my bias as a simulationist but like i think it's super cool that we have a lot of like interactive resources for modeling cool physics phenomenons phenomena phenomena i think that's super cool but there's not that much emphasis on that in terms of like public communication be like hey look you can like press like type in this code and then it like fucking wiggles isn't that rad anywho that's something I think marine science does really well for obvious reasons but I think you're the out the outreach side of like ocean physics and marine science and ecology is like so much better than what we've got
1: I'm curious what exactly you want to do in terms of public outreach like if you have anything specific in mind or like any specific avenues you want to follow
2: I don't know if I know specifics yet, only because I think because I still want to primarily be a scientist, any outreach is going to have to do with the science that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So while I have just been a basic marine educator in the past, like an internship I had last summer, which was super fun and I really enjoyed it, I think what I end up doing in grad school probably with seagrasses, how... I would apply that in outreach. is probably going to be very different. I'd like, there's two main facets. I'd very much like to directly talk to government officials. Mm-hmm. Like I would like to be quoting Hamilton, like in the room where it happens and talk about like policy that could protect like seagrass meadows specifically. And then I'd also just like to talk to people who live near the bay or talk to baymen who crab in seagrass meadows or fish near them um, and kind of tell people a little bit more what's beneath the water that they're using, I think would be very cool. So more more fun side and then I also really want to be involved in the technical side of policy making if possible. But we'll see.
1: Interesting. interesting.
2: And I feel like whenever you're interdisciplinary
0: in any respect, it becomes that question of like, oh, is like adding this kind of aspect to my career personally making me less of what I had originally intentioned or kind of drawing resources away from my like quote-unquote true purpose as a scientist but in the end there's just not one way to do a career and be be do do the science that's my thought
2: and for anyone that's probably a point when you need to choose which direction you're going to go in just to save yourself from burnout i think you can't constantly be fighting every political battle but then also trying to understand novel science Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's a right or wrong way. It could could very well be that I go to graduate school, like get a PhD or a master's, and then decide that I'm going to be a policy mitigator that has a very strong science background Mm. versus becoming um, just absolutely like a research scientist for like a government agency or like a university or something like that. Mm. And both or all three sound exciting. So. Well, that's good. I guess that's the good news. Thank
0: you so much for listening to this week's episode of Sprouting in Stem.
1: You can find us on social media at Sprouting in Stem on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
0: Our title music is brought to you by the enormously talented Angel Paste. And we'll see you next week.